husband Brian Murphy went into the hospital September 10th and passed away October 16th. From day one when he went in the hospital, I begged for the Merrick protocol, I begged for ivermectin, and was denied every time. I asked every single doctor that, that came into his room that I was on the phone with in ICU, spoke to nurses, everyone, and I was denied the protocol because it wasn't Sentara's protocol. I think you had mentioned it at the end, it seems like it's in Terra, the, the committees and the hospital versus the, the physicians and the patients. Is that your stance and what can you say about that? Yeah, I mean, it seems to me it's what the committee says versus what we think. And you know, I mean, it's the patient, it's the physician who's at the bedside. I'm responsible for the patient. I'm responsible for the patient who's dying, not this faceless committee of people Quite honestly, have limited experience treating COVID. As a physician, you do whatever you can to save the patient's life. Every person and every patient has the right to make an informed medical decision. People are looking for options. They're looking for a way so that we don't have to have mandates. These vaccines are not as safe as we're being led to believe. The hospital denied him the proper treatment that would save his life. I'm here to support Dr. Merrick and his fight against Sentara. He's suing because he needs to be able to treat his patients the way that he feels is right. And that's the Virginia law. The system telling him he can't do what he needs to do to save lives is just extremely disturbing. My husband got COVID on September 2nd. He was put in the hospital on September 12th. And we asked for the protocol that Dr. Merrick was talking about. And we, we were denied that protocol at Lynchburg General Hospital. And then um, on October 1st, my husband had to be airlifted to UVA Hospital. And he's been on a trach vent since um, September 25th. She didn't want to go to the hospital because she said, I don't want to go. And I had to honor that. So we, I took care of her there at my home. Then two days after taking the ivermectin and staying up with her in the middle of the night, keeping her oxygen up in her 90s, and um, it's a job, but it does work. I was amazed. Two, two days later, she's up, walking down the steps, washing clothes. I am a survivor of COVID. I have a, a great story of life and um, overcoming something that has killed so many people because I used Dr. Merrick's math protocol, or rather my doctor in Richmond was able to use that for me. I took ivermectin, it was very successful. Um, and I'm grateful to be alive, all glory to God. Dr. Paul Merrick is an internationally renowned physician for his work in the development of a sepsis protocol and other protocols that have saved the lives of thousands of people around the world. Dr. Merrick developed a protocol with a group of other leading physicians from around the United States and around the world to treat COVID-19. Dr. Merrick is being prevented from using that protocol on his own patients in the ICU. And because of that, his patients in the ICU are dying. Uh, we're optimistic. In fact, I feel very strongly that the law is on the side of patient rights. You know, it's not the committee-patient relationship, it's the doctor-patient relationship. Ivermectin is approved in 79 countries across the world. The uh, Tokyo Medical Association chair on the 22nd of August basically approved the use of ivermectin for every single patient in Japan with COVID. Okay, so somehow it's safe and effective in Japan. Japanese people use it. We know that the, the rates of COVID have gone down significantly in the last two or three months post the Olympics. 
probably related to ivermectin. In India, in Uttar Pradesh, they had a terrible outbreak. Terrible. They had to seek and find and treat with ivermectin. COVID-19 is gone. It's been approved in India. It's on their national formulary. It's approved in 79 countries. So how, how can it be that it's safe in Japan, it's safe in India, it's safe in South America? So the answer is, it's those countries that Big Pharma have no influence. That's where it is, because Big Pharma is controlling this. As Paul said outside that Virginia courthouse, this case is not just about him. It is about the right of every doctor to treat his or her patient as he or she knows best based on years of medical training and research and bedside experience, plus the knowledge of what's going on inside each individual patient and the doctor, the bedside doctor knows that best. We're all different. Every good doctor knows that. Well, we have three good doctors with us tonight, including Dr. Merrick. Um, with, but I, I have to tell you first, we need to thank another doctor and that's Dr. Sheila Fury. Um, she led the effort to organize that demonstration of patients outside the courthouse who, uh, and she's also a powerful advocate for early treatment of COVID herself. She makes home visits. We also have to thank Jordan, who did those video interviews. He produced the video. He's all in support of Paul and the FLCCC, and he did it all pro bono. Thank you. Thank you for that wonderful gift. Welcome to the FLCCC Weekly Update. I'm Betsy Ashton. I'm the creative director of this organization. And um, as you can see now on your screens, we have Pierre Corey, we have Paul Merrick, and we have a special guest also with us. And from Houston, Texas, a doctor who is Mary Bowden. And one thing with these doctors, the three of them have all been pushed around by hospital administrators simply because they have had the audacity to save lives by using safe and effective, inexpensive, off-patent medicines um, to treat COVID. Now, is that such a terrible thing to do, Pierre? What do you, what do you say? Let's get this conversation started. Yeah. So I guess in, in some quarters, in a lot of quarters it is, but it's, uh, I mean, in a word, it's absurd. But uh, I do want to say um, hello to Dr. Bowden and um, I guess welcome her to the club of the, uh, I don't know, the excommunicated, the unloved. <laughs> well, in, in, like I said, maybe by some, but but uh, by, by others, not so much, right? I mean, if you, you, let's just talk about that video for a second. So before we talk to Dr. Bowden, I thought... Um, just want to say that video is really moving. Paul, I really like seeing, you know, the people coming out in force to support you. As many have come out to uh, support Dr. Bowden and it was really quite moving. And, and I mean, they, they know what's up. They know who's a real doctor. They know who's not. And, and like you said, and some others said, you, you don't want to be treated by a committee. I mean, what, what does a committee know about anything? And the other thing is, I love how they use this grandiose language of multidisciplinary experts gathered and sharing all their insight. And meanwhile, if you counted up the number of like ICU COVID patients that they treated uh, as a committee, you probably on one hand, you could come out or maybe be zero. So anyway, Paul, I just want to say it was really cool to see people showing up for you. Um, you know, before the holidays, we talked with your lawyer who was on that video um, we had a webinar there. We talked about your court case. I think the hearing hadn't happened yet. Do you want to uh, sort of bring us up to speed on what happened with your case? And then we're going to talk about uh, Dr. Bowden's case. Yeah, thanks, Pierre. So, uh, you know, firstly, I want to thank all the people that came to the courthouse and all the good wishes I've received both in this country and across the world. Um, it, it's It's been touching to me and uh, personally, you know, very gratifying. And I think, you know, we've started something, you know, um, we've started a movement and 
you know, basically doctors should be doctors. Let doctors be doctors and let them do what they do, look after the patients. Unfortunately, the local press uh, and the hospital made this an issue about ivermectin, which it clearly wasn't because I was never allowed to use ivermectin. And unfortunately, the lawyers and uh, Ted Bundy, you know, did what they did prior to this. They lied. They have a problem dealing with the truth. And, you know, they lied to the, to the judge. And I was sitting there on my hands. What can I do? The man is talking bullshit. Um, and he's doing it, you know, just freely and glibly. Um, it was very difficult to restrain myself because he was talking the same nonsense about how safe remdesivir is and they have these multidisciplinary committees and that I was using this toxic medication which was unproven. I mean, it's truly the, the depth of the lies were, were unbelievable. The problem is the judge is, he's not a medical person. So yeah, he was put in this awkward position to try and evaluate this nonsense. But anyway, Paul, wait, didn't he, didn't the judge kind of agree that he didn't want to get into the medicine, that he wanted to talk about the law on whether a hospital has the authority to restrict or intervene on your expertise? Is that? Yeah, but the, they, their argument was they had to discuss this because they thought it was relevant for him to hear this. So, okay they sprouted forward all this nonsense. The judge really wanted to try and figure out can a hospital basically preclude a doctor prescribing medicine. And really, this is what's happened in the country. You know, we have the federal government, we have the federal agencies, and we have hospitals telling doctors how to treat patients. It's outrageous. It's not a difficult concept to comprehend. You know, the federal government should not interfere with the provision of medicine at the bedside. The doctor is the one who should do the doctoring. So unfortunately, the, the judge didn't approve or, you know, our injunction. So um, that meant, you know, that the hospital could continue doing what they're doing. Uh, it's not finished. So there will be a trial. And there are some other legal uh, avenues that we have open. So it's not a closed and shut case, but the, you know, just to show you how spiteful and vengeful the hospital is, you know, as we know, I was meant to go to work on the Saturday following the, the hearing. And the Centaurus said during the hearing that I was going to be going back to work. So I arrived at work on Saturday and find an envelope on my desk, which tells me that my privileges to practice medicine at the hospital had been removed and I was not able to practice. So, you know, this just gives you an idea of evil in its purest form and how people can get away with this kind of mischief. And the tragedy is, you know, it's not me, it's people are dying. As you saw from those people standing outside the courthouse, people are dying. And, you know, when somebody is dying, the doctor's obligation is to do whatever he can, by whatever means, whatever tools he can, to treat the patient. And, you know, if the patient dies, well, at least there's some comfort in knowing everything is being done. But to tie the hands of the doctor, that's what really they're doing. They say they're not. And not allow the doctor to do what he does is, you know, murder. Because they are not letting the doctor do what he should do. So, you know, this is what this case is about. It's about let doctors be doctors. And obviously, it's more than just about ivermectin because... Now, I was banned from using a whole list of medications. You know, some of them are anti-androgen therapies, which we've spoken about. And as we know from the headlines this week, spironolactone, a anti-androgen, has hit the news as one of those remarkable drugs. Yet, 
we've been using spironolactone and antiandrogens for months, but I'm not allowed to use it. Um, so really, this is a war on repurposed drugs, yep. which is truly astonishing because prior to COVID, the FDA had actually encouraged doctors to use off-label FDA-approved drugs. They said it's perfectly fine for doctors to use off-label drugs based on their clinical judgment. There was no legal precedent or any reason not to prescribe them. But it seemed that with COVID, all the rules have gone out of the window. And now we have the federal government, these agencies and hospitals dictating how doctors practice medicine. And, you know, doctors have lost their medical license. They've been threatened. You know, they face litigation. You know, it really is outrageous. And I think, you know, the, the only gratitude or the satisfaction I have is that I think people now, you know, not, are getting, they're understanding what's going on and the word is spreading. And I think that's the only way we can stop this is by a grassroots effort to, you know, for people to actually understand what is happening because these awful people are resulting in the death of tens of thousands of patients. It's an abomination. Well, I don't know. <clears throat> it's hard to, for me to listen to, even though I know the story, I live the story and, you know, listen, you got your privileges roped. I lost my job. I mean, uh, Umberto lost, I mean, we're, a lot of good doctors are losing their jobs in my opinion. And, and then, you know, and, and you know what kills me, Paul, is that when you think about when you got hired or when I got hired, like when I became the chief of the critical care service at the University of Wisconsin, it was because of my expertise that they wanted me to come work for them so that I could teach others, so that I could bring some of my knowledge and, and expertise. And yet in COVID, it's upended. Now, suddenly your expertise is not desired. In fact, it's inconvenient because like you said, Paul, if it's a, a war on repurposed drugs, and they don't want you to use them, and you're a guy who's having fantastic success using them, you're very inconvenient to their to their operations. And so, uh, as I imagine Mary's is too. And so, Mary, I, I'm glad you uh, are joining us tonight. I'm going to start out with a funny question. Can you identify with what's going on with Paul? Oh, yes. Much so, unfortunately. But um, yeah, I've learned what tyrants, the uh, hospital systems are, and I'm not even, I mean, I'm outpatient. I never really even go in the hospital, um, but I became the target. So I completely understand. Well, that, that's what makes it more absurd. So can you do me a favor? Can you first like uh, introduce like uh, what you do? So what your title is, what you do, what your practice is like. And then, cause you and I had talked a little bit about this. Let's talk about how you became a target. Why would you become a target? You're not even in the hospital. Right, it's ridiculous. I'm a, I'm an ear, nose and throat sleep doctor. Um, I have a solo practice, I have a small practice. I've only been open for two years. I stumbled into COVID because I had patients who asked me to test them and then I figured out a way to do it where I wouldn't have to ration testing. I had supplies, I did the saliva test. And so my COVID practice kind of exploded um, and like in the last two years, I've run over 80,000 COVID tests. So that kind wow. of made me the COVID doctor in the neighborhood. And then I started doing monoclonal antibodies and I, and I learned about what y'all are doing. I've just been following, you know, I just tell everybody I follow the FLCC protocols. Um, and it's just been a great resource, but cause I'm not in the hospitals. I don't right. really, I just. I trust what y'all, your protocol. Maybe that was a good thing. Maybe you learned some good medicine by not being in the <laughs> no, hospital. Exactly. <laughs> but no, I am fortunate because I, I self-employed. I don't answer to anybody. So it's, it's, I'm free to do what I want. I, so I thought, um, but yeah, I, I made Methodist. So mad, wait, but... so hold on. So let's be clear. You don't even work for the hospital. You have a solo no, 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 no. practice. So, I so just... what do they care about what you're doing? Uh, well, it's all a publicity thing and to yep. make an example out of me. That's what's so crazy about this is that 
I mean, I just had privileges there because if I'm doing a tonsillectomy on somebody and they have a bleed and they need to be hospitalized, I have to have a place to send them. Yep. So it's you know, I'd never stepped foot in Methodist since getting privileges there because I didn't even operate there. Um, but I sent I, I send out emails to my patients and I sent out this email saying that I was not going to treat vaccinated people anymore. And in that email, I also said that um, I had had a patient call me distraught because she'd seen a, a urologist at Methodist who told her that they were no longer going to see patients that were um, not vaccinated. So she needed a new wow. urologist. And I put that in my letter and that, you know, ruffled some feathers. Um, but then I did send out another letter saying that Methodist had responded saying that's not their policy. But, and then I'm pretty vocal on Twitter and I'm very vocal against mandates and they are the, you know, they're the center of the world with mandates. They're the ones yep. that started the whole thing. And they also, I've also been um, supportive of ivermectin and they are openly, they've sent out, you know, it's on their website. They do not support ivermectin. So they said I was spreading dangerous information. And the way I found out that my privileges were suspended was a text message from the Houston Chronicle asking me to confirm if it was true. And I was like, no, no, what are you talking about? And then so I the press learned about it before you learned about it? Yes. And they that's because Methus went to the Houston Chronicle and told them. They purposely put it out in the media to make an example out of me. I mean, what's totally absurd about this is Dr. Bowden doesn't even practice in that hospital. Right. I mean, so what business is it of theirs? I mean, you know, if you were doing some kind of mischievous deed in their hospital, but yeah, it's it's absurd. But it's this, they, that's what the similarity is between you two. It's it's literally sandbox retaliation nonsense. So, so mm -hmm. she said something, she pointed out an absurdity of something that was occurring at Houston Methodist and they went after her in the most petty of ways, right? They, they revoked your privileges that you don't even use and right. they went to the press first, right? Okay. Just like with Paul, he brought a, a, a really important point of law with the patient at the forefront and they go behind him and they whack his privileges, right? I mean, it's mm -hmm. literally... It's like back alley fist fighting, and unfortunately, they have a lot of power. Right, but so I'm I'm gonna take them down. Don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just hired their um their nemesis nurse, the one that I don't know if you saw in the news that she caused a big stink over the mandates, and she led a bunch of protests. I just hired her, and she's she started today. So that. That's step one, but we've got more coming for them. Well, I, it sounds like there's a home for everybody, you know, if, uh, you know, because I don't know, I, I just had to leave my third job in the pandemic and okay. I don't know, I'm going to make my own home now, but uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Well, I'm, I'm glad to see that, um, you know, you're going to keep going and keep taking care of patients. So let's, let's talk about that. I mean, you became, like you said, a COVID doctor, right? Like you saw the need, you started offering tests. And next thing you know, you, you built a COVID practice and, mm -hmm. and you started using, like you heard about our protocols. And so how, tell us, tell us, um, maybe I'm biased here, how they've been working out for you. <laughs> well, excellent. Excellent. I have not lost, to my knowledge, no one has passed away. Um, I have had a few people end up in the hospital, but not, you know, they down the road. Basically, I, I, I allow access to monoclonal antibodies. You can sign up on my website. You don't have to have a prescription. You can be 25 years old, perfectly healthy, and get them as long as I have them. So I don't put any restrictions on them. Um, and then I basically, I mean, I don't hand out ivermectin to everybody, but I am willing to prescribe it to people where it's, you know, I think it's reasonable and they want it. Um, and then I do a lot of telemedicine for patients that want to be prepared. Yep. So, um, and I've just... And even before we had monoclonal antibodies, I tried to do, like I did curbside breathing treatments. So I'd bring people, because I my clinic is in a strip center. So patients can just drive up and then I do breathing treatments in their cars. So I've been trying to keep people out of the hospital from the start. Wow, wow. And you also treat, um, so you, you give patients uh, sort of treatment planning in case they were get sick. You give them prevention uh, approaches, and then you also see long haul or post vaccine syndromes. Yeah, I'm starting to see those 
cases. Yeah. Now. And have you used ivermectin for that? Oh yeah, I've yeah. used that. I've I've had some success doing monoclonal antibodies for those too, um, but just a handful of people so far. But uh, I always start with the ivermectin, and depending on what their symptoms are, some other you know other the flu voxamine or yeah. Um, but I've had you know a lot of people research the heck out of everything, and I've I've had people ask me to try monoclonal antibodies on them, and I've had good luck with those people. So. Okay. And now, how are you doing with pharmacies? Oh, God. <laughs> I mean, I found my pharmacies, but... Okay. Oh, That's wow. what you got to do, right? Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, how ridiculous is it that we have to do that? Um, no, it, it's just another level, new record and absurdity. And it just makes it so hard, right? We're in a pandemic. We're getting no support. We're getting attacks. And all we're doing is what we've always done our whole careers is just using pragmatic decision-making and sound data and then, and then we're also relying on rapidly developing experience. I mean, listen, okay. I mean, I hope we can all admit if we were using a medication and it wasn't working <laughs> and our patients were going to the hospital, believe me, I'd get rid of it. And I'd be like, let's try this. Let's try that. Yeah. Right? And it's like, like the vaccine, right? The vaccine's not working. So why <laughs> I, are we pushing it? Yeah, not, nothing's perfect, right? I mean, but, uh, and that's why we're constantly evolving and trying different strategies. So um, I don't, I just, I think it's really cool uh, to hear your experience. I'm glad that you've been a force of sound pragmatic medicine in your community. Um, and then I'm also saddened and not surprised to hear that you, uh, you ran into some headwinds, shall we say, for, for being that force, you know? And, and you know, <clears throat> I think Paul and I have had a, a, a rough couple of weeks, actually all of us in the FLCCC over the last couple of months, we, we've ran into a ton of headwinds and like we're, we're getting more crap than we ever have, you know, and, and it got so bad for Paul, Paul had to, you know, go to court and, and um, we were really hoping that court case would send that message back. I, mm -hmm. I'm going to say my personal opinion, I, I'm not a lawyer, but in my understanding, what happened to Paul is I, I actually think that the, the judge failed. I think he failed to be bold and, and to make a ruling that was consistent with what was established law. Because I've read some of the declaration and, and the lawsuit, and there really were points of law there, Paul, which really supports the attending physician's expertise and the yeah. right to try and, the, and, and to protect the physician from interference in, in, in caring for a patient. And yeah, so, like, so we, we have protections and they weren't followed. Yeah, so maybe I didn't explain one of the bizarre aberrations of of the hearing is that Centaurus claimed that I didn't have standing. So, you know, I don't know what standing is. Standing is you stand or you sit. So, <laughs> so their this is why we're not lawyers, Paul. <laughs> yeah, so their main argument was I didn't have standing, which apparently it means that I can't go to the court and represent the patients I'm treating. I don't have the standing to do that what must happen is the patients themselves have to appear in court and appear for themselves. Now, you just think about how absurd a notion that is. That I mean, if anybody is going to have standing to represent the interests of the patient, it's the doctor. But no, they want the patient who's dying in the ICU somehow to appear in court and make the argument that they want this alternative therapy. I mean, can you believe it? Yeah, this is or standing. And or then, the family and then, or something. And then what the hospital said is, you know, okay, you know what? We don't want him to use it, but what he must do is he must go to the patient or the family and tell them, hey, you know what? There is an alternative therapy um, which could save your life but I'm not allowed to give it to you because the hospital won't let me. But what I want to do is transfer you to another hospital. So in the middle of a pandemic, where you have patients in an ICU on ventilators who are dying, I have to tell patients that I can't give them the treatment they need, but that I must transfer them to some hospital somewhere, somehow, where they'll get treatment. I mean, it was a two-pony circus, a complete circus. So, I, you know, I don't know what to say. Fortunately, the ponies had ivermectin, but that's all I can say. <laughs> it, it was a complete circus. 
the judge, I don't think he knew what to do. But you know what, the matter is, it's, it's not over. I mean, I think people know how absurd this is. Um, and you know, you look at the options here, you have remdesivir, a toxic drug, which increases your risk of death, which Ted Bundy thinks is safe. And then you have safe repurposed drugs, which are cheap, that you can't use. I mean, it just is, makes no sense. You know, Paul, you just gave me an idea. So we know that there is attorney Ralph Larigo who has gone to court on behalf of patients, right? Who are obstructed by their doctor from getting ivermectin to their family members. So family members have gone to court, Ralph represented them and Ralph's won in a number of instances, except usually it's because the hospital and the physician are blocking it. In your case, you were the doctor trying to get medicines to a patient and the hospital was blocking you. All we need is a doctor and a family who are aligned, who both want to treat a patient with ivermectin and yet they work in the hospital. And I'm only using ivermectin as an example. It could be any number of medicines. The only, the only difference is with other hospitals, Paul, Centaur is unique because they, they lost their effing minds and they outlawed almost everything on our protocols, right? On the math plus protocols, like six medicines. The rest of the country, there's only one medicine that they outlaw or maybe two, right? It's ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. But if we could get a situation where you had a physician, someone who's bold enough. See, here's the other problem, Paul, is so few people in the country would be willing to do what you, what you did, which is take their employer to court on behalf of their patients. But I'm going to say this for anyone listening, if there's a physician out there who's had it and, and wants to fight back against these restrictions to using what we know are effective medicines, well, then, you know, they would need a family member. But, but again, what, what's the chances of that situation happening? And where a physician's willing to go toe to toe with their employer, knowing what's going to befall them, by the way, you are the example, right? So uh, they're going to come after you. Look at Mary. Just She said one thing sideways about an institution that she doesn't even really work for, and she got attacked in the press. Yeah. And so you, you need someone who's going to be dumb, as dumb as us or as courageous as us or some mixture of the two. I don't know. Yeah. So, I mean, you're right about individual patients. And what happens is that patient then wins the right. But it's just that patient, not other patients in, in the hospital. So it doesn't, you know, it, it doesn't but, have But a if the physician was, in, if the attending physician was part of the, like, like you just said, Paul, right? Because you were the physician without a patient. If we had a patient and the treating physician who, and they sued for the same thing you did, which was for the autonomy, for the la, for, for an injunction against the hospital restricting an FDA approved med. Yeah. That's what but we they, want is we want an injunction against these hospitals. And by the way, I'm from New York. All my friends live in, in uh, work in major health systems in New York and New York City. All of those health systems outlaw ivermectin. All what, of them. What about getting the attorney general to sue the hospital? Is that? Well, possible? we do have attorney generals. You've seen that, right, Mary? The, the couple of the opinions, right? So the Nebraska attorney general wrote an opinion saying that it's totally appropriate for physicians to use off-label medicines in the pandemic. I, he didn't opine, Paul, you read it a little bit more carefully than I did. Did he talk about hot, like what Mary's saying? Did he talk about hospitals shouldn't restrict doctors or he just said in general, it should be used? Yeah, he, he said it was not, there was no legal precedence for pharmacies not to dispense it, doctors not to be able to prescribe it and for hospitals to refuse to dispense it. He said there's no legal precedent, which is, I mean, basically he said it. Um, uh, can you know, they sue, but can they, sue, can they take action? I mean, yeah. that's, I mean, so, that's, I mean I this like really comes down to the question is, yeah, can a hospital dictate what doctors can and can't prescribe? So the argument is their hospital, you know, they can do what they want to do, but they're actually there to serve patients and the doctors are the ones that treat them. So and, and medicine is regulated by the state. I mean, they are private entities, but the practice of medicine is regulated by the state as well. So I, I don't know where the law is between those two. Well, yeah. so, and then the I right mean, to the, cry law, I would think that yep. would trump all of this. I mean, but you know, if you look at the F, 
the FDA's own regulations, the FDA's own regulations on repurposed drugs, including ivermectin, because, you know, the FDA went on this, you're not a horse, you're not a cow, stop it. But they've actually changed their wording and are actually saying that it's okay to prescribe ivermectin if you get a script with the right dose and you get it from a pharmacy. So they've actually walked back their ridiculous statement. And the NIH has kept kind of neutral. So there's no reason hospitals should be doing this. Absolutely not. And right. I'll tell you, Mary, to your point about this attorney general. So the Louisiana attorney general, I think his name is Jeff Landry. Um, when the Louisiana pharmacy board sent out some letter missive, essentially telling all pharmacists in the state to not fill ivermectin, he actually stepped in. And he, I think he threatened them. He wrote a very powerful letter saying, you guys are actually violating the law by practicing medicine, by instructing pharmacists mm -hmm. not to fill. That's the practice of medicine of which you are not uh, approved or regulated to do. And you know what the pharmacy board did? They actually removed that memo and they changed the memo on that they had sent out. So, so there are, there, there has been, you know, some mild attorney general's action, but we need more. I mean, you know, I've said it repeatedly. One of our colleagues, Hector Carvalho, who's done some really cool studies, he said for a long time, it's time for the lawyers. I mean, literally, the lawyers have to step up. The attorney generals have to step up. I mean, otherwise, they're just going to keep running over us. Well, yeah. I mean, I don't know if you heard about that case that I was involved in in Fort Worth. And it was with Ralph and sued and, and the, the family sued and we won and then the hospital appealed and we lost on the appeal and you know it's just in the same case in Chicago where yeah. the family won and the guys it's all over the news about he's walked out of the hospital it's like same lawyer different judge and it's just very Mary, so so you've got you've been involved with the case with Ralph so have I when you actually talk to Ralph and I've kind of tweeted this a couple of times I've, I've, I've gotten Ralph to sit down. I'm like, Ralph, how many cases have you taken and how many people have walked out of ICUs? And it's literally like at one point he had taken 16 cases. He'd won like 14 and 12 of the patients had gotten discharged from the ICU at that time. Like it, mm -hmm. it's like a bizarre coincidental string of successes of right. winning in court and having patients survive the illness in the ICU. And so, uh, and so with your patient, they appealed. Uh, then hospital, they won. So bad. Okay, they, they, okay, we won. They, the hospital was supposed to grant me temporary privileges so that I could prescribe anything I wanted. I was going to do the whole shebang. And then they denied my temporary privileges, of course, for no reason. I mean, I have a. Because you're not worthy. Well, you, you didn't meet their exacting standards for temporary I mean, privileges. Yeah, I've never been sued. It was just, anyway. So then, then they said, and then there was some wrangling. I don't really know what happened, but they said, okay, we'll grant her temporary privileges that only to give ivermectin and she has to do it herself or she can hire a nurse to do it. So I'm like, fine. I have to resubmit the whole application process, which you know how that is. It's like a 10 page thing. Yep. Um, then, and then they, they appealed, but we thought we didn't get to stay on the order. So we, I sent a nurse to the hospital and the and lawyer said yes, go ahead because they didn't put a stay on the order. And the hospital administrator showed up at the ICU waiting room with police and sent my nurse home. Oh. Even though there was an active order for a judge that you could administer the medication. Yes, but apparently there was an appeal, but the lawyers hadn't gotten the stay yet. And there, I guess there was a stay, but the lawyers hadn't gotten it. I don't. Ah. It was, messy but it was just not handled very delicately or but the, you know what you're describing is and that's happened in a number of cases of ralph's because i've been involved like literally the hospital loses in court right so now they have to allow for that medic and then they say no no doctor that works for us of course no doctor works for them wants to do it because that doctor is going to be very quickly relieved of their job if they go against the hospital right so then they mm -hmm. say no you have to find someone in the community then they reject their privileges. And then when it really looks bad in front of the judge, then they accept someone's privileges. And then they, this is how like immature and sandbox it gets. Then they say, 
no nurse here will give that right. very exactly. toxic medicine to this patient. You need to hire, you need to come yourself. So we have exactly. a Dr. Alan Bain in Chicago who's been involved in a couple of cases and he's very willingly given his time and gone to the actual ICU to administer the medication to patients because they mm -hmm. won't allow their nurses. I'm sure the nurses wouldn't care. They would do it. But the nurses know if they did it, they'd go against their hospital and lose their job. And the one thing that I've, I'm going to stop here and say, the one thing that I've learned in this pandemic is that the desire to remain employed is extremely powerful in everyone. I don't, mm -hmm. I don't want to put anyone down for that, but I just wish there was a few more people willing to stand up and, 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 and just and, and fight back against this nonsense. And, you know, if you had a nurse who like willingly did it and made an example of this, I mean, I think you'd get more people behind them. Just like Paul's right. example as a physician and your example as well. You know, you, you, you came out, you did a press conference and you, you, you called attention to the absurdity of what they're doing to the individual physician. Yeah. I mean, that's standing why up for good medicine. Well, that's why you know, I'm the, the not absurdity. The absurdity of the situation is ivermectin is one of the safest medications on this planet. You know, more people die from Tylenol than from ivermectin. So, <laughs> well, they've, you know, they've given four billion doses across continents in, in you know in Asia and Africa to children, pregnant so, women, so to, nurses, to, nurses, to everybody. Nurses can give Tylenol and nobody freaks out, but you can't. You can't give a nurse to give either mectin. And you know what, even if it doesn't work, assume the worst, it doesn't work. What is there to lose? It is so safe. And yeah. at least it gives the family the reassurance you're trying. I know. And when someone is dying and really- This sick, is why families are so distressed. And this is why those people like in your video and then like, and you've seen it, Mary. And in that, in that case that you talked about that you were involved in, I mean, do you know how absolutely traumatizing it is for, for a family member to know that like something as simple and as safe as ivermectin wasn't even tried? And then they have to watch their family member die for lack right, of then, like the, one of the safest pills in history. And a then, you know, the pill. hospital, the hospital after this has wrapped up his feeding tube in a sheet and, and made it you know, inaccessible as possible so that she doesn't sneak any in. I mean, that's just how it's just I mean, it, it, you can't make this up. I want I this stuff in the history books that literally mm -hmm. a modern day hospital like needed to put a feeding tube under lock and key in case someone were to sneak in an ivermectin. Anyway, why don't, why don't we, I'm sure people have uh, oh, yes. lots of stuff we've talked oh, about yeah. probably have engendered some questions. And so Mary, maybe you'll answer some questions with us. I okay. want to know how those hospital administrators sleep at night. Yeah, how can question. they not know that they are murderers? Literally. I mean, they've got to have read more than the smears that are going no, on. No, they just want to keep their jobs. There's someone above him, above them that would usher them out the door if they stood up. I'm telling you, people want to stay employed. But you know, if, if there was one hospital that stood up and, and did this, they would be like the saviors of the world, you know? But, but here's the thing, Mary, when Paul's case went out, like the lawyers looked, like Paul's hospital didn't allow ivermectin. But when they looked in the community, there were other hospitals that allow it. Not every hospital outlaws it, but a lot of the big systems do. Mm. I can't find any in Houston except for one, so... <laughs> Yeah, probably Joe Verone's hospital. Yeah, right. So. Okay, we have questions. Uh, we have one from Louise Van Hoff who says, has the FLCCC done any studies on natural immunity? Do you have an opinion about its protection? You did that, didn't you, Pierre? Did well, you so do we don't, we, we, we're not an organization that does studies, first of all. I mean, we're, we're practicing clinicians who research therapies and have uh, immense amounts of clinical experience but we, we don't have the infrastructure to do studies, number one. However, there is now, and I'll tell you, it's, there's a, a researcher and epidemiologist from, uh, used to be from McMaster, used to work for WHO. He's the most well-read and written on this topic, but the last count, I think there was 106 studies showing, and I'm just going to be brief, that natural immunity is profoundly protective and highly durable over the long term. You know, everybody wants to be naysayer with how long is it going to last in this? We have no evidence to show that there's any significant or appreciable 
increase in the amount of reinfections. The last thing I'll say is just last week in the New England Journal, which I've stopped freaking um, uh, quoting, except for when it's convenient, but they actually did, a, it came out of Qatar. They did a, a big study on reinfections. And out of like, I don't know, 60,000, I can't remember the total amount, but they were able to identify around 1,300 reinfections in a very large population. And guess what? Every single case was mild. There was not one death. And I would not, shouldn't say every single case, but I think there was two ICU admissions and no deaths out of the 1,300 reinfections. So I would argue it's highly potent, very durable. And even if there's a breakthrough reinfection, essentially mild. And so I don't know of anyone who's died from a reinfection yet. doesn't mean it hasn't happened. I just don't have any evidence. So so this idea that natural immunity is not recognized is, is another one of the absurd non-scientific policies uh, that we're subjected to as a country. But if you actually think of the physiology, natural infection gives you much better in an immune response. It's just not rocket science because you have mucosal immunity, which you don't get with vaccination, and you have antibodies against a whole variety of peptides, which you don't get for the vaccine. And so it's just basic common sense. And I think the data shows that natural immunity protects you much better against the various variants than does vaccination. So this whole idea that somehow the body's natural immune response is defective, but the vaccine isn't, it, it is absurd. Marketing, 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 it sounds like to me, right? Okay, so we have a question from James. Well, hold on, real quick. So Mary, just because you have, uh, you've had a number of, I mean, you've treated hundreds, if not a, a few thousand. I have some family medicine friends, they, they have in their practice had a couple of reinfections. Have you had any? Rare, rare. And um, it's interesting. I, rem I have looked at the antibody. I have a few patients that I've diagnosed really early, like maybe March of 2020. And they've come back and their antibody levels are actually higher, huh. you know, a year and a half later. So hmm. from the natural infection. Whereas, you know, the people that get vaccinated, they drop, drops yep. pretty quickly. But yep. yeah, I've had, I, you know, and I've had the people that have got, I don't think I've had documented reinfection from my testers. You know, I'll have people that say, oh, well, I've already had it. And then they test positive. Oh, this happened again. But I can't think of a single case where I've actually tested them and they have had to, you know, they've had a reinfection. Gotcha. Okay. Now then, here's the question that you all knew was coming tonight. Do you, this is James Frohoffs, do you have any data yet about the Omicron variant? No. Um, I well, think this, is, this has been a hype that is designed to make people scared and to generate fear. We just do not know. We know more about Martians um, invading the planet than we do on the stupid variant. So we've got to wait and see. We don't know. And I think we should all just wait and see. Who knows? Uh, and I think it's so premature to, to you know, go off the handle. We just don't have the data. We have to wait and be patient. And who knows? I think it's a lot of fear mongering. Have you talked to some of your doctors? You got doctor friends down in South Africa. Well, so I did. I did. In fact, uh, I was talking to Chris Martinson. And he asked me to reach out to some of our friends in South Africa. Mm -hmm. And I did. And I got to tell you, uh, they parroted what's in the media. We just don't know. There's no real good source data. There's not enough patients yet. You know, I mean, once I, I've been saying, like, once they test uh, a whole bunch of people in a hospital or a community and you get like 30, 40, 50, 60% Omicron, then we can start describing what it's like. Is it severe? Is it not? But, you know, to, it, it, you know, they quoted some doctor who saw like a few patients and it was mild. We don't know if they were young, if they were old. I mean, there's just not enough data to say. I, I'm just going to say what Paul said is totally correct. We, we want to know more. We just don't. And so, um, is it a milder form? Might be. Is it a worse form? Could be. Uh, we don't know enough. In fact, I, in fact, there's data suggesting that it could be either for me. So 
I don't know. I'm, I, I'm as curious as anyone else. Well, we'll do a show on it when we know something worth reporting, right? Yep. Okay. Uh, oh, th- th- let me add that last point is okay. that no matter what it is, we're going to figure out how to treat it. You know, if we have to double down and we have to increase our doses, durations, or combinations, we're going to do it. But we also have to figure out, we have to see it first in order to figure out how to treat it or rely on some of our colleagues who use our protocols in the different countries where it's popping up. And so uh, we'll use all the resources we can to figure out how to treat it, but I'm, I'm pretty confident we'll figure out how to treat it. Okay. Uh, Corey Barron wants to, Barron, yes, Corey Barron wants to know, why don't doctors, particularly on who are under attack, like everybody here, uh, why don't doctors form their own practices instead of working in these hospitals? Is it possible to consolidate all of the practices into a single hospital or hospital system? I, I'd love to speak to that. Yeah, I was going to say, Mary, why don't you take that I, one? Uh, I used to be part of that the system, and uh, I started my own practice a few years ago. I'm solo, um, and now I want to start my own little micro hospital and outpatient surgery center with like-minded doctors. And we're trying. We're, I've had a little group of Houston doctors. That's, we're all talking and trying to collaborate and figure out if we can get this done. So, um, and yeah, I mean, I I'm trying to hire a primary care doctor to come help me, um, but you know, they're not a lot of doctors that are willing to do it, and it's fear and. Um, you know, I, for me to go out on my own was it took a, a leap of faith, um, but I, it is becoming more and more common. It's just going to take time. You know, what I'll say is this, is that it's well described in medicine over the last decade or two that where it used to be the majority of practitioners in this country were solo, almost all of them have been bought up. There's a conglomeration, a consolidation, and health systems kind of rule the land. However... Mm-hmm. You know, it's almost like, you know, every action has its equal and opposite reaction. That kind of trend and dynamic, especially the absurdities and the behaviors that we're seeing that we talked about tonight with these, you know, consolidation of power and the the absurd captured status of all these is I think that question, that question is on a lot of people's mind, just like Mary just said, her and some of her colleagues are like, we can do this a different way. And I think patients are like, or basically now the patients are like, hey, docs, can you like fight for us? Because it seems like these big systems aren't doing it. I actually think now there's an impetus and a dynamic. Look, I'm unemployed right now. I'm looking for my next venture. And I can guarantee you, it's not entering another large hospital system. And so, um, Mary, I'll tell you, I was about to say privately, although this isn't very private, but I'm also aware there's other groups in the in Midwest same thing as you're doing. They're in talks now about maybe buying a hospital and coming up with a different model um, mm-hmm. that really speaks to, or that overcomes some of these restrictions and and interference with the practice of medicine to help not only uh, the welfare of the patients, but the welfare of the physicians, mm-hmm. right? To, to let us do our job the best way we can. And so the question's great. And all I can say is the answer is yes. Yeah. I, I think uh, in fact, we're going to be starting our own FLCCC hospital. So, Shut up, Paul. Paul, there people will believe you. Stop. <laughs> we need to do a lot of fundraising because it may take us 200 years to get enough funding. But then, then you know. Build the basement. <laughs> yeah. The problem, so, you know, in answer to that question, I think the big healthcare systems have become so powerful and so, you know, threatening it becomes very difficult for small practitioners to survive yeah and i have a question for you a follow-up question from the old consumer reporter here come on guys you your problem seems to be coming from big pharma the people who make the drugs that you depend on if you're going to have a hospital to treat patients um how do you don't you think that they'd strangle you on this oh yes so you know what? I learned something this week, which which I think is so outrageously evil that it's evil. So, you know, we, we talked about remdesivir, which doesn't work. So I don't know if people know, the federal government will give hospitals a 20% bonus on the entire hospital bill 
if the physician prescribes remdesivir. Now, isn't that evil? So they're paying $3,000 for a drug which doesn't work, and now the federal government is giving them a bonus for using a drug which doesn't work. So, Paul, when I, when, I, sorry, when I say regulatory capture or that these alphabet agencies are pharma, who do you think wrote that legislation? Yeah, of course. Besides a pharmaceutical think, company. I think the federal government and pharma are so intertwined, you can't tell the difference between them. They are one and the same thing. There's no difference. Big pharma, federal government, they're all in, in the, sleeping in the same bedroom. Crazy. Well, we have a, time for a couple more here. Um, let's see, where were we? We were, we were about to have our own hospital built. Oh, we have a question for Dr. Bowden uh, from Pamela Flanders. Are you able to sue the hospital or take any action for not notifying you of the loss of your privileges personally and just going directly to the media instead of making the, instead to make the announcement? Yeah, there is something called due process. It's even, it's in their bylaws. It's regulated by the JCO, the hospital regulators. You don't, this is not the way this kind of thing is handled. I mean, they, there's supposed to be a conversation, a phone call, a meeting. You don't blast it to the Houston Chronicle. So, um, I, yeah, I'm going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to let them get away with it. <laughs> okay. All right. Now, yeah, um, there you go, Mary. Go, go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, go, Mary. Got a fighter. Got a fighter. <laughs> All right. Um, many want to know, all of you, that uh, if ivermectin will work against uh, Omicron, whatever it is, whatever. Well, yeah. Back to Omicron. Yeah, the answer is yes. Thank yes. you. This next question. <laughs> next question. All right. Can you, from Anonymous, can you settle once and for all whether vaccinated people can still infect others or can just unvaccinated people infect others? And what so, about people on ivermectin? The, the, can they infect others? So hold on, the, the, there's nothing that needs to be settled. I mean, that even comes <laughs> from the federal government. I mean, and, and nothing is transparent from the government and everything seems to be obfuscated and, and really almost manipulated, but they themselves admit not only are viral loads equivalent between the two, but they're highly transmissible. Come on, the outbreaks that we had this summer were in highly vaccinated groups. So the idea that a vaccinated person can't transmit or is not transmitting at high rates is not even has to be debated, number one. And can someone on ivermectin transmit? Absolutely, they could. Here's the difference. The studies on ivermectin show repeatedly that there is a dose-dependent time to viral clearance. So if you get treated with ivermectin, the time in which you're infectious is shortened. This is also why when you look at all of the epidemiologic studies, for instance, Paul mentioned in his video, Japan, right? Once you start treating in communities with ivermectin, it seems that the cases go down. And in my opinion, the reason why the cases go down is because those that you're treating very quickly become less infectious. How do you think Uttar Pradesh eradicated the disease? They eradicated the disease, in my opinion, with absolutely widespread, uh, not only treatment of those sick, but prophylaxis of those around them. So they literally extinguish transmission networks by using ivermectin. And so, so yes, you can still transmit with ivermectin, but you're much less likely and much shorter duration. So I think the most important factor is viral load in terms of transmissibility. And if you use ivermectin, it rapidly decreases viral load. So you become less infectious. Yep. So yes. And the final question, how does molnupiravir compare to ivermectin in antiviral activity? <laughs> so could, I, could I answer that one? Sure. So the <laughs> however you pronounce it, was, uh, as I understand, approved by the FDA. My understanding is that placebo is more effective in clearing virus 
than Malpiravir. Mm -hmm. So my understanding is the combined endpoint of hospitalization or death was better with placebo than Can Malpiravir. Can I clarify that, Paul? So Although Pierre and I still kind of argue. Yeah, no. So we argued about this earlier, and he basically—I didn't win that argument because he's not listening to me. All right, <laughs> can I give? I'm going to give you my opinion. Um, well, not my opinion, but this is how I understand the data. What happened with molnupiravir is they they press released interim data. You know, what was it? It was uh, October first. Uh, this was after the pharmageddon and ivermectin. Suddenly, they put out a press release saying that molnupiravir reduces hospitalization by 50%. That was an interim analysis on, I don't know, maybe three, 400 patients. Just this week, we were given the final total data set, which I think is 750 patients. And what happened was since the midpoint or the interim analysis, the evidence of efficacy has been reduced. So it's no longer a reduction of 50%, it's only 30%. And what Paul is saying is in the, in the data that happened after their interim analysis, placebo performed better than the drug. So I don't know why the first half of the study, the drug was better than placebo, but in the second half of the study, the placebo was better than the drug. And so, and, and what's absurd, and Paul, this is what we talked about, is that if you look at the actual, like the FDA is so captured, like we knew they were going to prove it. But even the FDA had trouble approving this. They had, they had real issues with the danger signals around it, the mutagenicity, the fact that there was a lot of restrictions, you know, exclusions around pregnant women, sexually active young people, women of childbearing age without contraception, you know, all of these exclusions. And then they were like kind of underwhelmed with the impacts clinically. And so, but, but yet it still got FDA approval. It got approved. Do yep. you, I mean, it's approved or not approved. It's, it's like you win or you lose. It doesn't matter how much you win or lose. It was approved. It's your well, healthcare system at work, Paul. So um, I'd rather take placebo. <laughs> is, this, is this the one that was originally, originally, uh, designed to fight Eastern equine encephalitis. It's a horse drug, Betsy. It's, it's a horse drug. <laughs> oh, is this the horse but, but this drug? Time, this time it's like literally a horse drug. Like it's, a, it's used a real horse drug. to treat a horse disease. I thought, gee, I thought that was the other. Oh, my. Where's the truth in all of it? Okay, fine. Thank you very much, gentlemen. <laughs> thank you, Pierre. Thank you, Paul. And thank you, Mary Bowden, for joining us fighters Thanks, all good Thank good you. luck to all of you we don't go away folks because we have a few good announcements and something fun to show you here in a minute um but this is all the time we had for questions tonight uh, but if we didn't get to yours we'll get back to you again next week we will be here wednesday night 7 p.m eastern time 4 p.m pacific everything in between meanwhile we have so much, you know, we just had Thanksgiving weekend. We have so much to thank you for, for all of you who have told us how much you love Dr. Merrick, how he saved your lives and those of your friends and family members, and how many of you have written to the court and on social media and on Substack, whether for on ours and also on rescue, telling us how the doctors need to be doctors, let doctors be doctors, and how, how you were in that Norfolk courtroom or outside on that sidewalk. Um, thank you, thank you, thank you. And when you do those writings, remember the hashtag, let doctors be doctors. Uh, we are posting critical updates to the court case uh, as they come in. And so keep checking the website for that. And it's, you know, https colon forward slash forward slash flccc.net. And as always, uh, the COVID prevention and treatment uh, protocols are there, along with uh, everything that you need for your getting ready, your just-in-case COVID kit on the website. Links to the nurses, Christina's helpful how-to videos to deal with that povidone, iodine, and, you know, mix up the solution. It's all there on the website, all there to be helpful on the, and on our Odyssey channel. Check out our pharmacies page. If you have trouble getting ivermectin and you need a friendly pharmacist, or if you need a doctor to make a prescription for you, 
get a doctor. It's on the website. The links are there with a lot of good advice to how to talk to a pharmacy and uh, to find doctors that are near you. These are much more searchable than they used to be. Um, but remember, you still have to be good consumers. Uh, you have to ask, gee, uh, how much are you going to charge me for the drug? How much, how long is it going to take to get from wherever you are to my home? Um, so, you know, ask that. We don't have the kind of staff that can vet everybody. We're just trying to help you, to give you some information. Keep sending us your stories, your my stories. Uh, we, this is so good for us to hear about how you uh, got over things got over the disease with our protocols. This really helps us. One, one last thing, Betsy. So a couple yeah. of things. Hey, Paul, uh, a woman named Colina just wrote to me and asked me if I'm selling my Tesla. <laughs> Random question. I thought I would address that. No way. I'm not selling it. I love that thing. Uh, and then last thing is we, we would uh, be remiss if we didn't ask for donations. So whoever's still hanging out on the call, uh, remember that we are a nonprofit. We are fighting for you. And now I sound like a politician, but I, I do want to say that organization is always uh, appreciative and in need of help. So um, if you or anyone you know wants to support someone like us, uh, please do the donate buttons on our website, flccc.net. And we have to thank them because we hit a big mark. We did. We people have. Been yeah, so we did. We did very well. This generous. Year. So uh, we did very, very well. It's been great. Uh, thank you. They know what it costs to do the lawsuit and all of that. Not, not, not only the information we're putting out, but now we have to fight in court. So it's, it's a challenge, but I want it now the fun part. I want finally, 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 our new little store. We've been, we've been promising to get back up. Remember we were taken down. Look at this. Look at this. Our new little FCC store is only hours away from going live and look at some of the fun things that are going to be in it. Boy, our team, you know, has really been working on this. We've got hats, we've got shirts, we've got jackets, very classy looking stuff with just great, a great logo and great, Great, great messages on them. Uh, and, you and will Betsy, be where, where, are all the, where are all the proceeds go? Do they go to Paul's bank account or do they go to the FLCCC? A hundred percent of this goes to our nonprofit to serve the mission. It does not go into, you, you guys are not going to go to the Bahamas or no. anywhere exciting with this one. No, Certainly no, no, not. no. All right, thank you. Okay, it's totally, totally, totally for what we do, and uh, we're trying to save lives, folks. That's we give out education to doctors and people uh, who try to prevent our protocols. So it's all in the research that goes into it. That's what it's all about. That's what we do, and we have to fight idiots who are trying to keep us from doing it. What can I say? Great. Anyway, thank you. All right, thanks, guys. Stay well, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>